Thank you for listening to the Roundtable Consult, where we discuss political and social issues that matter to you from a spiritual, medical, and legal perspective. Join the conversation with your host, Attorney Sonia Madison and Dr. Mark Williams. Welcome to the Roundtable Consult. I'm your host, Dr. Mark Williams, and I'm joined by my co-host, you know who she is, (laughs) Attorney Sonia your best friend, your partner, all that. <laughs> not my wife. You are not my wife. <laughs> you are attorney Sonia Madison. <laughs> That's the reason why I call you that. I've been calling you that all my life. Attorney Sonia Madison. All even, your when, <laughs> even when you're about eight years old, because you probably like to argue then too. So <laughs> but how you been this week? Oh man, it's been it's been a good week. How was your week? You know, it was all right, even though it rained a lot. So it was um, ups and downs. Unfortunately, yeah, I had some tenant issues I had to fix toilets. and, and But I, I learned a lot about home repair. Oh. So nice. so interesting enough. But in the news, it's been a little interesting. Did you hear about the big indictment of Hunter Biden? I, I heard about the big indictment, <laughs> you know. And those people who are after Hunter Biden aren't really happy with that, aren't satisfied with it. They expected more. And it's interesting. I, I like watching these things because you always see the political bend behind it. So in one moment, the same ones who claim that the justice system is being weaponized against Donald Trump, you know, start still look at an indictment of Biden's son as not weaponization, um, especially when it's on a charge that that, to my understanding, really gets uh, applied to anyone or gets uh, anyone gets charged with this. So. I mean, he broke the law. He broke the law. Then he should be charged. I don't. I don't have any defense for that. We'll figure that out. That's too because right now we're hearing, oh, he lied on his application for a, a gun license. And to your point, hey, if it's the law, it's the law. But now we we know that you guys are going after him not because of right. <laughs> the violation of the law, um, but because you're trying to attack the Biden family. I heard one of them say something to the extent that they've got text message streams where. Hunter is complaining to his sister, I think, or to somebody, some relative about having to share 50 percent of the money that he's getting with his father and having to pay his bills. And so now that will be uh, it seems to me it would be pretty incriminating on a much higher level. And that's the reason why they uh, a lot of the Republicans are saying, no, there are much bigger fish to fry than this gun charge. And- <laughs> well, that's what I'm saying. We'll get to the bigger fish. Um, because if you have it, we know you'll pull that trigger. So then do you really have it? That's the, that's then the question, right? Um, because people, you pull the trigger on a lot smaller evidence for other people. So either you have the evidence and you're playing coy while we go through this election period, or you don't have the evidence. And again, you're just using the idea of evidence, as we saw with the whole election of love then the january 6th using this narrative of false you know evidence to try to promote a gain or your own means now i will say that their their rationale behind that is saying now uh well we that's why we need the impeachment inquiry because once we get the impeachment inquiry we have access to more subpoena power which we don't know what that means now we've learned what that right. meant congressional now, subpoena power <laughs> <laughs> but now you've got a kevin mccarthy that's like i we don't have it. Like, I don't want to go down this road. Now, I know he eventually caved. Did you see Matt Gates going in on, yeah. <laughs> on the speaker, threatening to essentially oust him from the position? And so I'm just like, this this little infighting that's going on is this party. Mitt Romney is, is I, I'm ready to read the book. That's all I got to say. I mean, it seems like it's going to be nothing but tea, nothing but, you know, all the dirty laundry in the Republican Party. Mm. Well, that's what happens. It's dirty laundry altogether. You want Lauren Bolbert out there groping her boyfriend in the movie theater. So whatever theater she was in. Groping and vaping. Right? And vaping. Groping and vaping. <laughs> the and new yet, Republican mantra. 
<laughs> what baby. happened to the family? What happened to conservative values? <laughs> that, isn't she divorced? I thought she got divorced since she was there. Um, still, you're think, now your boyfriend is groping you in public, and this is supposed to be a family friendly, you know, Broadway musical. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and you're vaping, and then you lied about vaping. But right. it's so funny. You lied about vaping in, in the theater, said, you know what? Let me pull the receipts. <laughs> let, me, let, me, let me drop the video footage. <laughs> I, I think what's happening is um, people are just being exposed for their level of hypocrisy. I, I love it when you take a strong position on one thing, when it's in your favor. And then just so happens that something, some other event happens to the other person, to your, to your opponent. And it's the exact same thing. And you have a totally different response to it. Uh, I have to think that God's behind some of that to say, let me show you just how hypocritical all of these people are. <laughs> and uh, it's it's entertaining to watch, to say the least. Well, some <laughs> other pop news that will kind of hopefully transition to our topic today. We've we've got at least three celebrities that are going through divorce. We've got Sofia Vergara, who used to do Modern Family. You've got Joe John- Jonas, which I think is a big music star <laughs> i'm sure he is I, unfortunately i don't listen to the jonas brothers, jonas brothers? yes i know right? <laughs> i don't want to be little he is a big music star All right um, with his wife sophia turner who i did watch game of thrones so i was familiar with her um and then young jeezy recently filed for divorce from his his wife of two years and so and i think just that transition it's it's Marriage. I mean, I know we talked about it last week, but it, it's such a funny thing. Is it, is it no longer is to be desired, or is it a hey? Because I I remember um, I, I want to say was um, Gwyneth Paltrow and her husband. They were both like, you know, we just realized, yes, I was only supposed to be married to you to have kids. Now that mm-hmm. our kids are here, it is time to move on. Are we now at that point where marriage is just a phase? And eventually, we should understand that at some point it ends. <laughs> Marriage very well may be transactional for some people, and you know, maybe, maybe, maybe the the institute of marriage is is evolving. Well, before we go down the road of actually saying yes, <laughs> marriage is a matter of convenience for a particular period of time until that time is up. Uh, I, I do want us to talk about some of the pitfalls of divorce, as well as some of the pitfalls of marrying perhaps the wrong person or marrying for the purpose of, like you said, social media or clout or whatever you want to define it as. And so we were lucky enough to get a family law attorney. We have as our guest, Roland T. Harrison, who is over in Middle Tennessee. He has had a solo practice with the vision of treating others the way he would want to be treated. And after several thousands of cases in the areas of family law, estate planning, and probate, he has continued to maintain that vision. His law firm, Harrison and Associates, has had a depth of experience in working with several clients throughout Middle Tennessee. In addition to being an advocate, Mr. Harrison is also a family law mediator in which he tries to help clients focus on what matters most in order to find resolutions to their most pressing issues. His clients describe him as honest, caring, professional, and attentive, and he has developed a top-notch reputation of making sure he provides zealous advocacy in their time of need. Um, he lives in Nashville, Tennessee with his wife and two kids, enjoys watching sports and being an active member in the church. Thank you so much for joining us, Mr. Harrelson. All right. My pleasure to be here. Good to see you again, Sonia. Good to see you again, Mark. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. What church do you attend? We attend Koinonia in North Nashville. It's a church plant that's been here since 2020, so about three years. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, Fantastic. 1803 County Hospital Road. If you're in the area, we'd love for anybody in Nashville to come by. I've heard of it too, actually. I've heard yeah. some good things about it. So we'll awesome. come by and visit as well. Say, we that love that. Way of trying to test to make sure you were really active, but <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. We, we do have to test like Sonya. To, <laughs> we just have to test Sonya to find out if she's even saved. So. <laughs> Salvation test. <laughs> oh my goodness. But the, the marriage part before we get into the divorce. Um, you know, we've I've heard the concept of prenups, posting us together agreements right. and all that kind of stuff. When you talk to individuals that are coming to it, talk about whether to get a prenup or where to get a post-up. What are you often hearing or seeing as some problems or do you feel like, again, it's a good idea? What are your thoughts? Yeah, well, sure. 
Um, I meet with clients all the time about prenuptial agreements. Uh, they're also postnuptial agreements. So we'll talk about that too. But a prenuptial agreement is favored in the state of Tennessee where I practice. And in a prenup, basically we're saying ahead of time, if this does not go well, right? And if we end up having a divorce, we've already agreed about how to separate our assets and our debts. Now that can be super helpful. And a lot of times you're dealing with people who have already been through a divorce and they're like, look, I almost lost my shirt in that last divorce or I did lose my shirt in that last divorce. I'm not doing that ever again, right? So because people have such strong feelings about what happened to them in a past relationship, a lot of times people who are coming, sitting across the desk from me uh, to talk about a prenuptial agreement are there because one or both parties has had a divorce in the past or because a family member has said, hey, look, I've seen how these divorce situations can go. You need a prenup. Now, you know, I think it's complicated, right? Because uh, a prenup is only as good or bad as the person who drafts it and how the people operate under it. What I mean by that is typically in a prenuptial agreement, you're going to have different categories, some stuff that's mine, some stuff that's yours, and in a different category of stuff that's going to be ours. And the prenup will typically say like, hey, this stuff over here that's mine is always going to be mine. This stuff over here that's yours is always going to be yours. If we create some stuff in this joint category called ours, this is how we're going to divide that. Okay, well, then you think about that, like, all right, as we get down to buying a house together and we buy cars together and we buy a TV and we buy, you know, uh, furniture in the house and all these things, like, well, are we labeling these things? Like, are we, you know, technically the lawyer is going to tell you, okay, sir, ma'am, you know, to live under this prenup, it's important now that if you want to buy it, you buy it from your funds on your side, or she buy it from her funds on her side, or if we're going to go 50-50 on buying this new whatever, we go 50-50 and make sure that when you're titling vehicles and titling uh, houses and titling all these things, that you're titling just so, so that we can make sure that in the event of a divorce, it's very clear what's mine and what's yours. That, I think, sometimes could add pressure to a marriage, right? Like where it's like always like, you know, thinking about who's doing what and financially who's bringing what to the table and all of that. So I understand where in some respects that could add pressure to a marriage, especially if y'all are both young, neither one of y'all has anything. Like, what are you talking about? You know, but I also understand where people who are in later in life marriages say that you're 65 years old. You've already lived a life. You've already accumulated assets. Maybe you have businesses. Maybe you have interests, you know, other financial interests and you and your spouse already have kids from prior, prior relationships. A prenuptial agreement is in that, in that sense, kind of like estate planning, right? Because you're saying like, hey, look, if me and you get married at 65 years old and I've lived a life with a woman, we've had kids, we've had a life, you've done the same thing. It's kind of intended that my stuff is going to go to my kids and your stuff is going to go to your kids and we're going to enjoy each other as husband and wife. You know, so in the, in the society that we live in, a lot of folks get married at different points in their lives and so, yeah, prenuptial agreement and those sort of things seems like, yeah, that makes sense, right? Because we want to pr- try to protect people's inheritance. Now, the description that you gave in the, the first the first example you gave, particularly with the younger people who have the money, I'm curious that as a Christian, as a believer, um, how does that factor into these the decisions to move through that? Obviously, I'm sure you sure. have many Christian clients who say, and many Christians get divorced as well. Yeah. But sure, the sure. whole concept of of separation and having your pot, my pot, and our pot together seems to me to be antithetical to uh, the whole one flesh concept. How does how does one rationalize that, particularly in their Christian faith? Sure. Yeah, I think that that's a great question. So when I sit across the table from uh, folks as a lawyer, I sometimes, Mark, don't even um, lead with my faith or um, my, you know, that I'm a Christian or that I'm involved in my church, because sometimes that creates a dis between me and the client, right? And in that setting where I'm there just as a lawyer, giving legal advice, legal expertise, I'm not their pastor. I'm not their best friend. I'm there as their lawyer. I'm there to advocate for them as their lawyer. I'm there to advise them as their lawyer to make sure that they understand what their rights and options are. So that conversation that you and I are about to have, I never have, and I never cast judgment on my client because, you know, that's not what that relationship is about. But since you asked me what I think, um, if I was sitting across from my cousin, uh, if I was sitting across from my sister, right? If I was sitting across from my brother or sister at church and they come to me and they say like, hey, man, I know you work in this area. Let's talk about it. I would probably say, 
hey, you know, the two of you guys are getting married. If you are getting married and you have this expectation that you're going to have one flesh, like you said, we're taking two and we're becoming one new thing. Um, I think about the picture of a salt covenant where you've got some salts and I've got some salts and we mix them all in together and we shake it together. You can't go through that little vial of salts and pick out mine from yours, right? Because especially if yours are white and mine are white, we both just dump our salts in. It's all just in there together. You know, and I think that that's a, a picture of what marriage uh, looks like, feels like, is like, you know, it's, if, if you're always keeping tabs and always keeping the record and wait, I, I did this and you didn't do that. And th- I mean, like, that's going to be really hard to live under, you know what I mean? Like in any friendship, in any business relationship, um, but in the, in the uh, extent that we can just be in covenant with one another, I think we look back to the covenants uh, that help us to understand what marriage is. You know, you look back to Christ in the church and you say like, well, wait a minute. Is Jesus asking me every day, like, well, Roland, did you do this? And did you do that? And did you do that? Are you doing these other things? And did you contribute this? And how are you doing all that? You know, like, that's not the vibe that I get from the Lord, right? Like, I think he's all in on me. You know, even on days where I'm not all in on him, he's all in on me all the time. So when I think about it from that perspective, um, I, I'm, I would be concerned if there was a, a, an unhealthy interest in a prenuptial agreement. It would be like, well, wait a minute. Let's talk about where that's coming from. Because it could be that people uh, have gone through divorce in their life and that they just maybe have trauma that they haven't worked through, talked through, figured out. Um, you know, part of my own personal story is that my parents divorced when I was five. And, um, you know, that affected me, right, in lots of different ways. But one of the ways that it realized until I was an adult, I was in my marriage and, you know, in the early years. And Sonia's brother is Reggie. He's one of my dear friends and he's married and we've been married at about the same time. And so we were working together at the church in town and, um, you know, things would happen and me and Chrissy would get into an argument or a fuss and I'd be like, oh, Lord, is this it? Is this, is this the one? Is this going to be the one that breaks the camel's back, you know? Um, and Reggie and Erica, they didn't always agree on everything either, but Reggie was fine, right? Miss Daisy and Mr. Sam, his parents, they've been married forever. Like, and Reggie just seemed to have a settledness, like, hey, no matter what happens, we're going to work through it. It's going to be fine. You know, so I think that sometimes people who have come through a divorced life uh, have different fears uh, sometimes about like, hey, I'm not sure this is going to work out. I need to plan for the inevitable. You know, like there's all these other things going on. So if your partner is telling you like, baby, I think we need this prenup. You should probably before you go off like what? You know, you just say, OK, like, where is that coming from? You're like, and what are you thinking? And tell me a little more about that, because it could be something else going on. Well, let me do this. Let me just commend you on your ability to separate your faith from your profession and and understand that you can't, especially when your profession has to do with the law itself. Now, my profession in medicine, a lot of times we wound up, uh, you know, sometimes our faith contradicts our medical recommendations as well. Uh, But 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 the same point is, is that I, I see so many people in our society today. Uh, particularly as it pertains to the law and or politics, where they say that they have to be inextricably linked. How can you do that? You can be considered a a quote unquote hypocrite if you believe this way and you practice this way in your profession. And I don't think that that's necessarily true. I think you 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 are restricted by the confines of the law and what your profession allows you to do. And to be able to, to, to do that and then confidently stay strong in your faith, I, I commend you for that as well. Yeah. So. Well, thanks, Mark. Well, yeah. What I want to say about that, man, is that because of my faith, I respect you. I give you agency. I give you space to have the choice to make, you know, you that you get to make your own choices. And so I'm not going to, mm-hmm. Jesus isn't forcing himself on us. He could convert the whole world, but he allows us agency and space. And uh, he, you know, in a sense, respects our, our agency because we're made in his image. So mm-hmm. everybody that walks in that door is an image bearer, just like me. And they deserve value, dignity, respect, even if they completely have a way of life that's different from me, an uh, open marriage, a uh, uh, same-sex marriage or whatever it is, when they walk in that door in my office, I'm there as their lawyer. Now, sometimes you get to know a client and the relationship develops and get to share about lots of things. And then we get to be just people with each other. But especially when I'm first meeting clients, I'm just a lawyer. 
Mm-hmm. We're trying to teach Tanya that. I mean, Sonya <laughs> that too. How to how to respect Zeus, people's agency. I am, <laughs> I am acting in my capacity as a lawyer or not. But I do think, you know, even to that question, I do think it's important to write down or have a vision and write down how you want your family to to look and or how the roles and whatnot. And I, I think that's. Um, I don't think that's anti, you know, Bible or, or anything like that. I know in the Muslim community, they do talk about it's particular, hey, writing things down. And as you know, when you're in relations, in relations with people, sometimes it is good to write expectations so that I at least know okay, what it is that my spouse is, is expecting or asking of me and, and vice versa. But I wanted to get I've heard a lot about togetherness agreements, which seems to be one of those. And I don't know if you've dealt with that, um, but I see a lot of people in the church say, well, instead of calling it a prenup or a postnup, we'll call it a togetherness agreement in which we really just talk to each other about, okay, where do we want our assets to go? How how hmm. do we want to use our assets for our family or for whatever vision that we have? Um, have you had to deal with that? Have you, have you dealt with any of that or anything like that? Yeah, it hasn't come across my desk in that title, anything called a togetherness agreement. Um, I will say, right, like that prenuptial or prenuptial premarital counseling is probably a space and, and time where folks should absolutely be having those conversations. And whether you've been with your person for one year or 10 years, whether you're 25 years old or 65 years old, I always commend premarital counseling because it's a safe space to be able to have conversations about exactly what you're talking about. How are we going to put our lives together? And what baggage do we need to be aware of so it doesn't wreck us in our marriage, right? Like all those conversations we can have safely uh, in premarital counseling. And I also encourage people to go to premarital counseling before you go public about being engaged, right? Because it's all right to walk into premarital counseling and then come out of premarital counseling saying, you know what? I'm glad we did this because we would have made a mistake. You know, <laughs> yeah, it's hard to find those pre-engagement counseling because I, I agree. I think a lot more people should do the pre-engagement um, to have sure. those conversations. And they often say, at least I've read the news, that the part of the reasons why the divorce rate is so high is because people don't know how to manage conflict mm-hmm. within their relationships. And I know you've seen uh, tons of people come in and say, I want a divorce and give you a litany of reasons. What right. from your based on that, like what from your opinion is probably top three to five reasons as to why sure. people don't make their marriage work. I mean, I think it comes down to a couple of things. Um, things that you hear repeated a lot is, of course, like communication issues, you know, um, where folks, uh, I think, you know, struggle to work through their conflicts. And so they revert to other things and other people and other, you know, situations, other you know vices. Um, because they cannot effectively manage their conflict. Um, there's a guy who wrote a book. His name is Alan Godwin. He goes to our church and he wrote a book about conflict. And he talks about a conflict cycle and how what you really want out of conflict is to resolve the conflict. But sometimes the things that you do in conflict only exacerbate the conflict. And it just gets you into this crazy cycle where you're not really resolving it by dealing with the issues. You're just pushing each other's buttons and you're doing other things that don't lead to resolving the conflict. So I think that that is a big issue. That's really the key issue that leads into some of these other things, because when you then talk about um, family origin issues and expectation, well, that could be managed if you had better communication. Or if you talk then about financial issues that people were unable to manage and set expectations around, well, if we could communicate, we could probably deal with the financial issues. Or you talk about infidelity. Infidelity is not just people who are just dumb and horny and walking around. Infidelity issues are much more often deep-seated issues around um, my needs weren't being met in these two particular ways emotionally. Um, and then there was disconnect physically that led to, you know, me saying like, well, I guess I'm going to just go look for something else somewhere else. So again, communication though could probably help some of those issues that lead up to um, other issues that lead to breakdowns in marriages. Nobody wants to have the communication that uh, that is necessary to be able to have that because uh, after being married for 30 years myself, I've learned one of the things that I've always uh, said was that we have to allow each other to say the hurtful things, not with the intent of being hurtful, but with the knowledge that if I say this, it's going to hurt the other person. You still have to allow yourself to be able to to do that. And you have to be able to allow yourself to hear the hurtful things. 
because the reality of it is, is that all of those things are going to come out if they find themselves in your office trying to either mediate uh, or or execute a, diver- a divorce. <clears throat> and, but we always like the, the whole notion of kicking the can further down the road. I do ha- like how you describe that the goal should always be to resolve a conflict. But instead, a lot of times what we're doing in those interactions is actually just redirecting the conflict. You right. know, well, we we started out arguing about this. Now, all of a sudden, you threw this little monkey wrench into it. Now we're arguing about this. The The conflict is still unresolved. And now yeah. you got another conflict brewing because you just simply redirected it by by not wanting to deal with the difficult topic and to, to deal with the issue at hand. We had a viewer who asked a question, and I'm not exactly sure uh, what he meant by that, but he says, how do you advise a male client once it's revealed he does have something else going on? And, sure, and, sure. Uh, yeah, well, that's important, and that happens a lot, man. Male, female, whatever, and whoever it is. Answer, by the way, we want your Christian answer. I want both of them. Yeah, I, I want, I them want both. both of them. them both. That's fine. All right, so... My my legal answer first is that uh, the division of now. All right. So let me just deal with the people side first. Let's go there. first. All right. If you say to yourself, like, you know what? I have stepped out on my wife. I have stepped out on my husband. But I really want to be with my wife. I really want to be with my husband. I think you should, with the care and shepherding of the leaders at your church, um, the people who love y'all, walk through a process of repentance and rebuilding trust. That's what you should do if you want to save your marriage, okay? But if you're like, well, I'm in the middle of getting divorced, and now it's kind of come out that I've got this situation on the side, like, but I really am not trying to save my marriage. So then now my legal answer is that the division of the marital estate uh, is without regard to fault. That's in the statute of Tennessee. Uh, What that means is, I use the analogy of a pizza, right? If you think about every, all of your stuff being on a pizza, the judge's job is to divide that pizza and say which who gets what pieces, right? Um, so that's your marital estate. It's your real estate. It's your vehicles. It's your retirement accounts. It's all these different things. It's your debts. It's everything that you own. Um, and so, so somebody has to decide how those things are going to be divided. Either you guys will do it yourselves and memorialize that in a marital dissolution agreement, or if you have a child, the judge will do it for you. All right. So now, the division of the marital estate is without regard to fault. What does that mean? That means that you could be married to Freddy Krueger, right? And whatever the marital estate is, it's going to be divided equitably. Uh, now, does equitable mean 50-50? Not all the time, because 50-50 is not always equitable. So equitable is a you know, subjective term. It's up to the, what the judge thinks is equitable. But the, the longer you've been married, the more likely equitable means 50-50. Now, so then what does it even matter, right? Because that's what clients want to know sometimes. Like a client has been aggrieved, they've been cheated on, they've been lied to, they've been through all this with this man, with this woman for all these years. And now this person done this and this, are they going to pay for this? You know, and so that's what they really want to know. In Tennessee, um, the alimony statute talks about that fault is one of, I think it's like 12 considerations. uh, And it's not the first one or the most important one. The first and most important consideration in alimony is going to be whether or not one spouse has a demonstrated financial need and whether or not one spouse has the ability to meet that need and whether or not these parties are economically disadvantaged compared to each other. So if you make, I don't know, $2 million a year and the other person makes $100,000 a year, but their budget says that they can meet all their needs on $90,000 and they make $100,000. It doesn't matter that you're a horrible spouse because, right, there's no claim for alimony because there's no need. So the, the rough answer to that, to the person that's been agreed is like, look, I know you think somebody should pay in blood for what happened to you. But that's something that only God is going to be able to resolve because here in court, it, it's not going to go down like that. You might cream him. You might cream her. You might make them feel this small in court, but you're going to pay. Uh, you know, a, a huge price to get your case that far. By the time you done file complaints and got people served and done discovery and had mediations and had motions and settlement conferences and trials and witnesses and subpoenas and all these things, 
you're talking about $25,000 perhaps in, in a contested divorce litigation. And depending on who you're working with, more than that. So now you think like, wow, but this little pound of flesh that I wanted is not that satisfi satisfying to get a pound of flesh. And it certainly costs you quite a bit to get the judge to run your spouse down. And yeah, say you get some of your attorney's fees back. That's not a promise or a guarantee that you're going to get your attorney's fees because this other person was bad. Because most of the time, most of the time, you weren't an angel and they were a devil, right? There was just some bad on both sides, right? And even if you don't feel like it was equal or if I only did this because he did that, at the end of the day, you'd be surprised how often people are unsatisfied after a contested trial. That's fascinating because I didn't realize that because most of the time you hear people who are going through divorce, especially if there was an infidelity and or repeated flagrant infidelity and in they try to clean themselves up a little bit while they go through the divorce proceedings. And maybe that's a unique to Tennessee statutes. Maybe other states uh, have different laws that that can consider fault with regard to division of marital estates. And I heard three uh, I heard three three things that we need to consider in divorce. I heard two of them that you mentioned. I presume the third one hadn't been addressed yet. One is the division of marital estates. And you said uh, here in Tennessee, that's without regard to fault. Second one is alimony. You said they can consider that. But the third one that I'm thinking most about is that doesn't matter when it comes to custody. Absolutely. Well, no, fault and all of that does not really matter that you stepped out on your spouse. That does not matter. In fact, custody in our state um, is based on 16 factors that are outlined in Tennessee Code Annotated 366-106, for those that are taking notes. I um, mean, in 366-106, you'll find 16 factors, right? And the factors in Georgia, I just looked because I was like, oh, I think Sonia lives in Georgia. So uh, the factors in Georgia are pretty similar. They're outlined in 19-9-3. But uh, yeah, the factors basically go through the strength of the relationship between the parent and the child. Um, the past performance of parental responsibilities, the disposition of the parties to provide the child with care, um, food, clothing, medical care, um, the degree to which a parent has been a primary caregiver, the love and affection and emotional ties existing between a parent and the child, the emotional needs and developmental level of the child, um, the moral, physical, mental and emotional fitness of each parent as it relates to their ability to parent the child. See, it didn't say whether or not you were a good husband or a good wife or a good boyfriend or a good girlfriend. It's like, hey, you know, you may be a horrible boyfriend or a horrible girlfriend if y'all were never married, because uh, a lot of cases end up in juvenile court because their parties were never married. Um, but if you're a good dad or a good mom, the judge does not care that you are a, a, a creep of a girlfriend or a creep of a boyfriend. All right. Uh, the last couple factors here in Tennessee is the child's interaction and relationships with siblings, other relatives and other uh, people in the child's physical surroundings the importance of continuity in the child's life, the evidence of physical or emotional abuse to the child, to the other parent or to any other person. Um, you see that, especially in domestic violence cases, um, the character and behavior of any other person who resides in a frequent the home, the reasonable preference of the child, if the child is 12 years of age or, or older, each parent's employment schedule and any other factors considered deemed relevant by the, the court. And then finally, whether a parent has failed to pay court-ordered child support for a period of three years or more. So in Tennessee, the court looks at these 16 factors, and I want you to imagine that they, you, they start to trial with everything even. And the job of your lawyer is to push each factor over into your column, right? And so you tell stories, you present evidence that pushes each one of these factors over into your column. The judge writes an opinion. He's supposed to, he or she is supposed to opine on every one of these factors. Some factors, the judge will say, I find this one is equal. I find this one, you know, favors the mom. This one favors the dad, and this is why. You know, this one I find is uh, not relevant to this case because I didn't hear any uh, information presented about this factor. You know, so that's what a legal opinion looks like. And then the judge sets a schedule and says, like, hey, based on my findings, mom is going to be primary residential parent or dad is going to be primary residential parent, and the schedule for these parties and this child is going to be X, Y, and Z, whatever that schedule is going to be. And you, you know, what I find a lot of times, man, is that whatever y'all have been doing is likely to be kind of what the court is like, well, you've been doing this, right? And so now don't come in court asking for the sun, the moon, and the stars when, when before any of us showed up, you, you didn't hardly have a shot at all, right? So, you know, I think you have to be realistic in your expectations. Now, 
I will say an important part of the statute is at the very beginning, it talks about that the job of the court is to make a custody determination. Um, and it's based on the best interest of the child, but it's supposed to um, maximize participation possible in the life of the child with each parent. Well, what does that mean? Does that mean that we start with 50-50 and, and deviate from that? Or does that mean like, well, no, that's not what that means. We just do whatever we think is going to be best for the child and try to make sure everybody gets to be involved in the child's life. Each judge will have his own or her own interpretation on that. But yeah, that's a little bit about how that works. Well, so interesting it- enough, I feel like I hear a lot of men say, oh, the judicial system as it relates to family laws, relates to custody is going against the man. It is to favor the mm-hmm. woman. And, mm-hmm. and I often, I mean, I often say, and you can definitely correct me if I'm wrong, I'll stop saying it, that, well, part of the problem is it's the woman that goes to the attorney or to the court first. And so mm-hmm. she's then telling her story and you are playing the reaction mode. You're mm-hmm. instead of, you know, being more proactive and, and making sure you get the arrangement you want, you're saying, and I'm not saying you, but I'm saying a lot, sometimes guys yeah. are saying, hey, I just want to figure it out without paying any money. And then when it's, which to some degree, I'm sure you see this to some degree, like no one kind of likes having to co-parent. And so you kind of <laughs> need that third person. Um, but if you're you're relying or trying to accommodate one and in hopes of saving money elsewhere, you're kind of shooting yourself in the foot. But do you feel like the judicial system as it again pertains to custody and divorces favors the woman? Um. I'm going to say not because she's a woman. It favors the mother because statistically, um, well, let me, let me run, run this back and tell you a little more about the statute in Tennessee. In Tennessee, and I assume this is probably um, you know, ubiquitous across the 50 states, when unmarried parties have a child, um, the mother has 100% of the custodial rights unless and until the father goes to court to ask for some rights. So that's a, that has huge implication. What that means is right out of the womb, the mother is tasked with all the power and all the responsibility, right? Mm-hmm. And the father is just, he may never show up. We may never know exactly who he is. He just is out here. So yeah, the father does have the obligation, I would say, to, you know, to do something. He has to initiate something in order to get a court to grant him rights. Because what happens is, him and her getting along pretty good, you know, he's involved, but maybe they don't live together, whatever the situation is. And then she decides, well, you know, I'm going to move to Las Vegas. And he's like, well, well, no, no, no. We live in Chattanooga. Like, you can move to Las Vegas. And she moved to Las Vegas. Well, is she wrong? Right? Maybe she's morally wrong, but technically, according to the law, she had 100% of the custody rights. Well, what is custody? Custody is, number one, uh, a right to physical possession of a child. And number two, a right to decision-making uh, rights in the life of a child. So when I say the first one about physical possession, if I'm a dad and I say, well, hey, I want little, you know, little Johnny to come over my house this weekend. And the mom says, okay, he can come. But then we get into an argument Thursday and she says, you know what? Never mind. I don't like your attitude. No. And she would do you just know? that too. That's right. That's right. That's right. Never mind. Don't do that. Right? We don't need do that. Um, so, Hand snaps so, and all. There you go. So he he's he's like, well, wait a minute. It's Friday. You told me I could have him this weekend, but who has all of the rights around physical possession? The mother does. So if she says no, the answer is no. And if she shows up at the house with the police, you know, in the middle of your visitation, and you don't have a custody order, that police officer is going to give her custody of that child because you, father, have no rights until mm-hmm. the judge says you do. That's huge. I make sure that I press that impress that on every male client that I have because it's important that they know, like, sir, you are on the outside looking in. Okay. The second thing about decision making when it comes to, you know, healthcare, when it comes to school choice, when it comes to elective surgeries and procedures and all these things, the father is on the outside looking in until he has a custody order saying that he has some rights. Okay. So, yeah, I definitely think the, these things do lend themselves the statutory, you know, the way the way the statute is constructed uh, gives the mother sort of a head start. But let's be fair to the moms and say like that. Hey, in history and society, the moms are doing the heavy lifting like a lot of the time. You know, like where where are you fathers? Where are you guys? You know, like the moms have there's a lot of single moms because guys don't always step up. So 
you know, if the mom didn't have a, a decision-making authority, well, with some of these guys out here, these moms would be, you know, like unable to do anything, right? We don't, we don't know where he is. He ain't that involved. He ain't that interested. It's just me and these babies, you know, trying to figure it out. So the statute is written the way it's written. I think everybody has to just be aware of the way it's written and then do something, right? So the other thing that I read to you here, it talked about the performance of parenting responsibilities in the past. Well, hold on, sir. If you allowed a situation where for years and years and years and years and years, you've been on the outside looking in, she's told you no a hundred different times, and you didn't do anything to take it to court, you've allowed the status quo to remain, 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 remain year after year, year after year. So then if the court just looks and says, well, let me see, what's the history of, the, of this child with these parents? How often has this child been with mom? How often has this child been with dad? It's pretty clear, pretty quick, like, well, 90% of the time, the kid is with the mom, you know? And the kid, dad may have all these reasons why, but the courts are like, look, I'm here every day. You know, you could have filed a petition anytime. I've been here, I'm here today. And so, yeah, I understand that what you want is 50-50 custody, sir. But that's aspirational and not realistic. We can work up to that maybe, but you need to show me something. So uh, sometimes fathers walk in like, I'm the dad, you're the mom, you're not more important than I am, right, in the life of this child. Um, so I should be able to have 50-50, you know. And I think that that sometimes is short-sighted because they don't understand what the statute says. I also think that it's a lie to believe that um, the, the number on your parenting plan, how many days it says you have, has anything to do with how good of a dad or a mom you are. It has nothing to do with how much you love your kid, with how invested you are in your kid's life. I'm um, curious now, just because we live in a society that is uh, totally different from what the one that I grew up in. And we're starting to see a whole lot of transgender uh, issues come up, particularly with children. And I know there are certain states that are uh, banning transgender surgery on certain minors and or trying to pass legislation for that. I'm envisioning uh, a situation where one parent, they're married still, one parent is in agreement with their 16 or 15 year old child undergoing uh, transitioning to the opposite gender. And the other one is not in agreement with that. Is that the type of thing that then comes before family court and or, uh, you know, you'll see in your practice? Well, are you talking about, obviously, if the parties are still married, then the court has no jurisdiction, no power over these parties. But if you're talking about a situation where the parties are divorced and they share a child together, then yes, absolutely. The judge may be called upon to be the tiebreaker to make a decision about who has decision making rights over uh, non-emergency medical decisions for the child over uh, counseling decisions for the child, you know, over the child's mental health. And I think that is an, an area of the law that's developing because you think about it. If you are a 70-year-old jurist, you're a judge, you grew up in a whole different time, place, cultural moment than the one that we live in now. And I'm sure that, that judge is like asking his staff and reading and trying to figure out like, what is happening? I don't understand, you know? Um, and then maybe some are, you know, reading and learning and you know being involved in continuing education that lets them know like what some of the particular um you know needs are for different kids and so i don't know i think that as a jurist that's going to be something that's going to be challenging in the years to come because you're right it is more and more prevalent so even as a married couple if they're still married the court has no jurisdiction over that right oh and so they can't um so one one spouse can't bring the matter before the court to get it resolved for resolution for the child. Correct. Oh, interesting. I didn't know that. Because they don't do that in uh, medicine, though, for the, their medical but needs. But I was going to say now, the law, like you said, the law is evolving. Because I know in Tennessee, you guys are trying to ban it off top. And so to some degree, if, 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 if a state is saying, hey, a child under a certain age cannot go through this procedure, then to your point, Roland, it, it's not about a family law issue. It's about, okay, we've already got a statute in place here. It's a criminal offense for you to let this child do it. And so then you kind of mm -hmm. use that statute to, to try to circumvent it. 
Um, but if they, if, but again, if the state, because we know states are addressing this um, gender affirming um, issues, but if they don't address it, then yeah, like like Roland is saying, it, it's a difficult um, position, or you really can't go to the courts with it. Um, but something I'm curious about, though, because I know you got into um, folks who aren't married um, trying to go through custody. What about folks who are married trying to again go through the custody arrangements? Um, what? Sure. And 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 part of the question is also, I mean, because again, I hate for anyone to think about divorce. But if you find yourself saying, "Hey, I'm, I want to do this," I'd imagine you say, "Well, let's talk about things you need to do first. And and sometimes yeah. during that separation period, because I know some states, I'm, I'm not sure about Tennessee, but I know some states require you to go through a separation period. Perhaps then that's the period to start getting your ducks in a row. <laughs> um, sure, and even sure, yeah. if you're thinking about, like you said, medicine and healthcare um, when you have kids. So what would be your things to, to consider to think about or to organize, particularly as the male thinks that, hey, this is all going to be favored for the mother sure, before sure. pulling that trigger on divorce? Yeah, well, I mean, I think that um, while we wish everybody had a loving, um, considerate marriage, you know, there's a lot of people who have just a really rocky road, you know, and a lot of people who um, have spouses who are not loving, you know, and have spouses who are abusive and they're like hoping things turn around but they're also like yeah but i also need to protect myself and my kids as best i can in these situations if things don't turn around so you know speaking to people who are in those situations of course um you know i think that the first thing to do is tell people like look you you can't take care of others if you don't take care of yourself you know so taking care of yourself uh, looks like mental health first and foremost spiritual health mental and spiritual health first and foremost you can't even think right, make good decisions, have a good process for making decisions if you're just all strung out because of what's going on in your home or in your heart and or in your life. So I definitely think sometimes you need boundaries, you know, and there's different ways that people go about setting boundaries. I mean, I'm not obviously a therapist. I couldn't tell people exactly what's right for them. But I do think that setting boundaries um, in problematic, toxic relationships is important, even if that person is your wife, even if that person is your husband. Um, and in that space of setting boundaries, you guys might become like, well, you know what? I'm not putting my paycheck in this joint account anymore because right now I don't know what this is with me and you and I can't trust your decision making. And I don't believe you have my best interest in mind or my kids. So I'm going to be putting my money over here and you can put your money over there. And if there's some bills we can agree to pay together, then let's do that. You know, um, but I do think that people have to begin. Um, creating some boundaries. And while you hope for reconciliation, and while there's a lot of stories of reconciliation after people go through these kinds of things, um, sometimes it doesn't work out, right? And so it's wise and good if people have been able to sort of begin to put a little something aside financially, you know, and I'm not talking about in an unethical way, but, you know, in an ethical way, in a legal way, you just say like straight up, nobody's going to make you put your paycheck in this joint account, right? So if you say, I ain't doing it, right? I'm not doing it. My check is going to be over here. My check is, your check can be over there. And whatever this is in the middle, it is. Now, that sounds awesome when you're the one who makes more money, right? But what if you're not? <laughs> what if you're not the one who makes more money? You know, those are the, the harder costs, Sonia, because in those situations where you are financially exposed, he says, oh, you, you want to act funny, huh? All right, well, then I'm going to snatch away from you and, be, you know, now... You know, there's this term, right? Like, you know, domestic abuse is about power. It's not always about violence. Violence is sometimes a last resort. It's about control and power, dominance. So if they can use financial abuse to dominate you um, into doing what they want and controlling you, that's a, a horrible thing and, and all too common. So for people to find their way free from domestic abuse in the form of finances, I think, one, we have to call it what it is be as serious about it as we would be about somebody hitting somebody upside the face, right? We wouldn't tolerate that as friends of those people. We would be like, uh-uh, no, you need to deal with this, you know? Um, so I think we have to be serious about these other forms of financial and domestic abuse that we see uh, used in relationships. And then we, the community around these folks, have to do what we can, you know, to be like, hey, if you can't make it in this situation, like, let's try to find some resources. Let's see if they can live with a relative, with a church member, with a, somebody else. Like, you know, let's kind of put some care around this person until 
the situation stabilizes at home and they can go home and it's all right and everything is safe. Or maybe it doesn't work that way. And we end up needing a judge to order somebody to pay X, Y, and Z. You are, oh no, sir, you are going to pay this lady's rent. Oh no, sir, you are going to give her this much money for these groceries. Oh no, sir, you are going to make sure she has money for these kids. You know, so those things have to happen, unfortunately, in the world we live in. I want to give you a chance to defend your profession. <laughs> defend it. <laughs> defend it against what? Because this is what I hear. What I got I've your heard. back, Nolan. I got your back. <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's right. This is what I've heard. And, and, and people say that they start off, all of these divorces seem to start off pretty amicably. And until the attorney gets involved is what they say. And then the attorney mm -hmm. says, no, you need to go get this. You need to do that. And that a lot of the advice from the attorney is what fuels some of the mm -hmm. uh, conflict redirection, I should say, sure. instead sure. of the yeah. conflict resolution. How is there a role then for the attorney in that in, in either perpetuating it? And is there some self gain? Is there some um, some some gain that the attorney gets when he or she does that? Or is do you find that most people are just genuinely saying, "Okay, I'm just advising you of the law, and you decide what you need to do"? I mean, there are some shyster lawyers out here, man. There are some shyster doctors out here. There are some shyster accountants out here. There are all kinds of shysters out here in every field and profession, especially. In a, in a service industry, right? They're always going to be shysters, people who make a buck and don't really provide service, people who talk a good game, but don't follow through, right? That's going to be always an issue. So I think like when you're hiring a lawyer, there are certain things that you should do to make sure that this is a good fit. You should, you should hire for competence. You should hire for character. You should hire for chemistry, right? So when I talk about competence, does this lawyer know their stuff? Like have a consultation, listen to them, ask them your question, do some research ahead of time so that when you walk into the consultation, you're not a complete blank sheet of paper. You've got some expectations about what some of these things are. Um, when it comes to character, look at these person's reviews, look and see, you know, what other people have said who have worked with this lawyer. And then when it comes to chemistry, look and see if it's a fit. Like, right. If, when this lawyer talks, you all you hear is wah, 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 wah. They don't answer your questions. They can't really speak in a way that you feel like you can hear and understand what they're saying. You don't really feel like they've got your best interest in mind. They seem distracted, like they don't have the time and attention to give your case the attention it needs. You should keep looking, right? And then I think part of chemistry and fit is also financial. If that lawyer charges $400 an hour, and you ask them, hey, on a case like mine, honestly, about how many hours and about how much time and how much money is this going to be? And they tell you, well, this is going to be about $15,000 of work. And you make $12 an hour. That's not your lawyer. Even if you love that person, that is not your lawyer. OK, so, I mean, I think that there's some different things that go into picking the right relationship. So, yes, there are shysters. Now, the next thing that I'll tell you is that one of my judges um, he passed on now. We all loved him. And his name was Judge Smith. He used to tell litigants, he would say, um, sir, ma'am, are, are you going to participate in this lawsuit? And the litigant might say something like, judge, I'm just trying to get divorced. I don't know about no lawsuit. And just says, well, sir, this is a lawsuit. You know, were you being sued and this is a divorce and these are legal proceedings? He said, he would say, now, if you were having a pain in your side and you had appendicitis, would you say, oh, well, let me just get a mirror and see if I can't, you know, get a knife and fix this. You would say, like, that's a fool, right? A fool, only a fool would get a knife out in a mirror and try to fix their appendicitis, right? You would say, no, you, you need to go to a doctor because what you don't know can absolutely hurt you. So sometimes when you walk into your lawyer's office, your lawyer is working under that same premise. Sir, ma'am, what you don't know about this thing can absolutely hurt you, Right. You don't know what your rights are. You don't know how you should go about a thing. You just read the paperwork and it sounds good to you. And you say, yeah, okay, this seems good to me. Okay. You know, but a lot of times, man, people don't know what they don't know. And so that's where the lawyer gets involved. And sometimes lawyers are doing sort of um, this analysis, just like doctors, I'm sure, do around malpractice, right? There's this fear of, well, I need to turn over every single rock to make sure I know what's under every single rock. Otherwise, Something's going to happen. And this client, you know who, who they're going to blame? 
they're going to blame me. So, yeah, your, your lawyer is probably going to be overly thorough to make sure that he looks under every rock or she looks under every rock um, so that you, the client, can be a- uh, advocated for so that you can uh, be advised and make a knowing decision about what you're going to do or not do in your divorce case. Now, as a lay per- as a lay person, what we what we see from attorneys most often are personal injury lawyers, and we judge their competence by how much they got us. You know, you, they show it on the commercials. I got sure. five hundred thousand dollars from right. Morgan, yeah. or whatever yeah. whatever insurance yeah. company was or whatever the yeah. attorney was. Um, we probably would think, and pardon my ignorance for thinking that way, is that I would think that that also applies to people who go through divorces. Hey, I got this much in alimony. Thanks to my attorney. Thanks to attorney Harrison. Well, I wouldn't judge it like that because every case has particular facts that no one will know without really opening that file and looking at it. Um, So I wouldn't judge it like that. What I would do, and I actually tell people this is look online, you know, go to the Google you know, business reviews, look at avo.com, avvo.com, a site that reviews lawyers. Look up that lawyer on the Tennessee Board of Professional Responsibility and see how many disciplinary actions they've had. Um, You know, do some research, do some digging. Um, I have all the time clients call the office and say like, hey, I put in a Facebook group. Hey, y'all, I need some help with a divorce. You know, I need some help with a custody thing. Who, Who should I call? And, you know, I'm thankful that a lot of times people are like, Call Roland Harrison. He's, his office is good. They're going to take care of him. You know, that's an that's a honor. That's a huge compliment when we get a referral from a past client or from our community. And people are like, hey, I've heard good things about this person. Well, and I would add, if, if a client, a potential client comes to you and saying, well, I'm expecting 500000 as the lawyer, I'm going to say, well, you might want to find another lawyer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> like you said, the facts could be completely different as well as, again, I, I don't, I'm not going to put that expectation on myself because the point is to make sure we resolve it in the best interest. Um, I hate that we're running out of time because I, I still wanted to ask a couple more questions as it related to this topic, but I also wanted to make sure we wrap up in in terms of a couple of things that you said. One, again, if you are trying to be a proactive father, you need to make sure that you are telling the court, hey, I am this child's father (laughs) and go accordingly um, versus running your mouth saying, oh, the mother doesn't let me do anything. Well, okay, you you have your own responsibility as well. Um, and, And also, Pre-engagement counseling, I think that's also a good point that we talked about. So again, just like you may go to a lawyer to get all the stuff you don't know, go to a counselor. This is marriage. It's it's going to be a lot of stuff that we don't know in our marriage that perhaps we should talk through to see how we can better communicate and manage pending conflict that is inevitably going to come, right? Um, And then, of course, we, we, again, talked about the unfortunate incidents of divorce. I wanted to leave with just one final question, and then we'll close. As a Christian, you know, I, again, I know you said, hey, I don't, I don't put that Christian head on, but say you have a, a member of your church that's coming to you and saying, hey, sure. I, I'm, I'm ready to go down a divorce. And I know for a lot of people that are listening, they, they have friends that are telling them, hey, I don't know if I can stay in this marriage. And to some degree, we want to, as Christians, encourage, push, beg them to stay together um, because we feel like, again, what God has put together and let no men separate, right? So how do you go about having that conversation? Yeah, sure. I mean, to me, it's all about thinking about, you know, and these are huge issues that people have meditated on for thousands of years. Um, I don't certainly don't have all the wisdom and knowledge on this area, but for me, um, it's about meditating and thinking deeply about what marriage is. Um, you know, Jesus said that Moses suffered divorce because of hardness of heart. Right. So if a person's heart is so hard that they will not repent, that they will not change, that they continue to um, put the other person through cycles of abuse and this marriage no longer looks anything like Christ in the church. You know, they're not faithful. They're not you know loving. They're not any of these things that you expect and anticipate from a marriage. And there's no growth. There's no progress. Um, and you feel like, you know, God has told you, you know, like, hey, you know, this is not what I'm calling you to. Then you have difficult decisions to make, right? Do you stay married and separate? Do you divorce because you feel like you've got a reason to divorce? You know, as a Christian, those are that the analysis that I think we, we're called to do. 
Um, and I don't think that we're called to do that analysis in isolation. I think we're supposed to do that analysis um, with people who are spiritually mature, with people who know us and love us, with people who are not enablers for us, but people who will tell you like, now, Tanya, this is you. You know what I mean? Like, so yeah, I think that that's what we're called to as believers to be that for one another. Um, and then hopefully we rally around marriages. Reggie, your brother, um, one time showed me a statistic that said that when marriages are in trouble, like it was over 90%, if that marriage commits to being a part of a small group of other marriages and they all walk together, there was like a 90% success rate of those people being able to rebound, you know, like re-restore trust. And it's not safe and good for every marriage. Some people need to get divorced, right? But in a lot of times, especially for people who are willing to put in the work, um, you'd be surprised what God can do. I like you, you, the last word you said, people willing to put in the work. I've always contended that there's no such things as, for Christians, there should be no such thing as an irreconcilable difference because then that means that Jesus died in vain because he's died so that we could all be reconciled. The problem is, it's just that there are people who are unwilling to do the work of reconciliation. And it takes a lot of work to do that. Not that's just- That's that hardness of heart. You know, that's that's exactly what I think that comes down to, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks so much for joining us here on the Roundtable Console. You have certainly brought a lot of insight and information to this discussion. And uh, we look forward to talking to you, hopefully again in the future, maybe uh, get the rest of those questions out as well. (laughs) Thank you both. I'm so glad you guys tuned in. And you can, of course, tune in every Saturday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Central Standard Time. Check us out on your favorite podcast platform. So many episodes that you can go through and get a lot more nuggets of wisdom. And there will be a repeat of the show on Star Radio. You can also catch um, some of our shows on YouTube. So again, we'll see you next Saturday. Thanks so much. This has been another episode of the Roundtable Consult. Listen to this or other episodes at your convenience on your favorite podcast directory or listening app. Or catch us live every Saturday morning, 10 a.m. Central Standard Time, 11 a.m. Eastern at facebook.com forward slash roundtable consult. Tune in live and join the conversation.